Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord, who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord, who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha ba'elim Adonai. Michamocha nedar ba'kodesh. Noratehilot. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. All together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. 
ושאמרו בני ישראל את השבת, לעשות את השבת לדורתם ברית עולם. בני אוויון, בני ישראל, אותי לעולם, כששת ימין עשה ארוני את השמיים ואת הרלץ, וביום השביעי שבת ויינפש. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Le'olam Va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. V'chol levavcha, uv'chol nafshecha, uv'chol meyodecha. V'hayu ha'devarim ha'alei asher anochi, Mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashiftacha, babethcha, uflechtecha, viderech, ufshuchbecha, ufkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yadecha, vahayula totafot, benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot, betecha, uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
found in you, Jesus, Lord of all. We lift our eyes to you, exalted. Sabbath day for a chance to take our minds off the craziness of this world and just lift our hands, lift our voices, and praise you, Father. For you are the exalted one, the one who led us out of Egypt, the one who met Moses in the burning bush, the one who met at Sinai the one who took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. Blessed be your name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance. From my enemies Till all my fear Have gone I'm no longer A safe to I am child God I'm no No! 
Praise unbroken, praise unending. Be yours, be yours forevermore. Praise untainted, praise unfading. Be yours, be yours forevermore. Be yours, be yours forevermore. Unbroken praise, be yours not forever. Oh my praise, be yours not forever. Lord, take this heart, let it become your throne.
continuing the story of Jacob. And in this particular portion, if you're familiar with it, Jacob has now finished his 20 years of service uh, with Laban. He wants to go back to the land. The Lord has told him that he is to go back to the land. He has his wives and his children. But now, if you'll recall, he's going to face a very, very difficult test. And that is that his brother Esau, whom he had left and had actually escaped from some 20 years earlier, is in the land. And that if he goes back to the land, he's going to have to face down his brother who has what he believes to be evil intent toward him. And so you have this story in our Torah portion where... uh, Jacob leaves Laban and and gets loose from Laban, and all of a sudden now he's confronted with going into the land and having to deal with Esau. You could almost say it's like going out of the frying pan into the fire uh, for the conflict that is going to go on in Jacob's life. 
And part of what we have in this portion is how um, Jacob seeks to appease Esau by sending gifts uh, in advance of his traveling party and his flocks to give to Esau when he comes out, sending messengers to Esau saying, hey, I'm coming back, uh, you know, not trying to sneak in, being open about it. And he, and he gets the word that Esau is coming out with 400 men, and this is not a honor guard. This uh, Esau is coming out and appears to be very threatening, and uh, Jacob is quite distraught and beside himself on how to deal with this. And as I said, he comes up with this plan to divide his family into two companies um, and to send gifts and so forth in advance of the family members going across so that as Esau would come out to approach him, there would be a number of things that would be presented to Esau, uh, hoping to get him to be an agreeable reception of him, and this incredible conflict, uh, how to deal with this conflict. Finally comes down to Genesis 33, where they finally, Jacob does finally meet, and instead of conflict, it says that uh, Esau kissed Jacob um, on the neck. It's a very interesting piece of scripture because there's a, um, and in fact, I'm talking about uh, Genesis 33, verse 4, at the word where he says kiss, because the scribes write above the word kissed, they put a set of jots. And this is one of the places where you have the jots and tittles. And they put the jots. And the commentary that's given by the sages of Israel is this represented the points of the teeth, of uh, the sharp teeth, in which Esau really, what was in his heart, was a desire to bite the neck of Jacob and to do harm to him. Part of what they say from this is they then say that even though Esau received Jacob back into the land and allowed his family to settle in the land again, without conflict, in the generations that follow, the descendants of Esau, sometimes called Edom, uh, Edom means red, and Esau was red, and so they also call him Edom, that in the land of Edom and the descendants of Esau became arch enemies of Israel in multiple ways, in multiple generations. The, I once heard a, a, a Jewish man give a very interesting speech to a Christian man, and the Christian man had been appealing to the Jewish man with great kindness, wanting to share his faith with a, a fellow Jewish man, and the, the Jewish man continued to resist the very best and kindest efforts of the Christian man. And finally, the Christian man said to him, why is it that you continue to reject my kindnesses that I'm showing to you? And the Jewish man says, I don't have a problem with you. I have a problem with your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, because they will rise up to harm my children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren. And what the Jewish man is responding to is this story. Esau was a brother. 
And yet Esau turned out to be a worst enemy. It is a fact, uh, and a lot of people will testify this. Quite often, members of your own family will be more vicious and do more harm to you than a stranger. And for some reason, they think they have license to do that. And they are like the spirit of Esau, full of envy, strife, whatever. And, and they, even though they're brethren, there's no safeguards in there to just treat the person as a, as a, a stranger. You, you wouldn't treat a stranger that way. But because it's a brother, a real brother in the family, uh, you'll go to these links to be as harmful as you possibly can. You know, one of the favorite expressions I've had is you don't get to choose your family, but you do get to pick your friends. And sometimes when you don't get to choose your family, if the family member turns out to be a very bad person, harmful to you, you have to live with it. You, you don't get to escape it. Jacob could not escape Esau. And he had to deal, find a way to deal with Esau. Now, our Haftor portion is echoing this same thing, and it comes from um, the book of Obadiah. Uh, this is a prophet that uh, few people uh, really um, read or spend much time with. You know, the, you know, you go, oh yeah, I think that guy is a prophet. You know, and, and oh, by the way, he's got a very small book in the Bible. The reason why a lot of people don't read from Ob Obadiah is because he specifically is addressing the conflict with Edom and Esau. And let's do a comparison. Jacob, when he came into the land, didn't have an army with him. He had some herdsmen, he had his wives, he had his children, his children are young, his, his sons are not grown. He's pretty much weak. He's at, as subject to a lot of things. Whereas Esau, in this 20 years that he has had, he's built himself up. He's got an army. He, he controls lands and so forth. And again, when he comes out to meet his brother, he's got 400 troops with him. So it appears that Esau increased mightily in strength, whereas Jacob was weak but he had multiplied, and he was in a weak state having to meet Esau. Obadiah speaks to what's in the heart of Esau about how he thinks he's high up. And let me read to you from Obadiah chapter 1. Let's read a little bit, and then I will share with you why we tied this portion in with the Torah portion. Chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Yet you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how will you be ruined? Would they not steal only until they had had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. And all the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not in that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understandings from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountains of Esau by slaughter. Essentially, this is Obadiah prophesying to the descendants of Esau and saying, uh, I know you think you're high and lofty. I know you are in a struggle with your brother Jacob, and you think you're above him. You were born firstborn. You think your birthright was stolen. You think you're the righteous one, and the other one is the unrighteous one. And you think very highly of yourself. And you've gone into this land, and you've decided to build your dwelling places like fortresses up in these high mountains and high cliffs, and you think nobody can touch me. And so he says, though you've done all of that, the Lord is going to have you fall from that place. He's going to bring you down. There's a wonderful verse in Proverbs I'm sure most of you are familiar with. It says, pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. But it's not just that that's involved here. Yes, you could say that Esau was acting haughty and snooty, and as a result, there's going to be some justice coming their way. But more of what this is dealing with is this following principle. And that is what our Haftoah portion is trying to emphasize for us. If you're a righteous man, and you run into struggles and problems and so forth, you will still prevail. Look at the example of Jacob. He was a righteous man doing what God told him to do. He had many struggles with his brother, with Laban, his uncle, coming back, had struggles with his own children. In the course of his life, I've always said this, if you could swap out with one of the patriarchs, the one you don't want to swap with is Jacob. This guy had a tough life. But the kingdom was named after him. His name went from Jacob to Israel. He prevailed. And in fact, in his wrestling match with what we believe to be the Messiah, before he crossed over and came back into the land, uh, one of the things that stated to him is that his name would now be called, be called Israel because you have prevailed with men and with God. You have prevailed. So one of the great principles of the Torah is that if you're a righteous man, no matter what your life struggles are or how they may manifest themselves, in the end, you will prevail. Now, conversely, the example of Esau is given to us. And that example is you're an unrighteous man. 
And although you build up great things, although you have successes, although you're impressive to other people, in the end, you will not prevail. And this is an incredible principle and should be of great encouragement to us as followers of the Lord. We need to continue to pursue the path of walking before the Lord righteous and upright. Stop being concerned about all of the difficulties that are going on in the world, difficulties in your personal life and so forth. You will prevail before God if you are a righteous person. And whereas we see other people in the world, the unrighteous, and we see that even though great things happen to them, the harm that actually comes and that they will not prevail. Uh, I'm I'm so tempted, I I know I'm going to time date this for the moment, but this is what I see as going on in our country with our present president of the United States. Joe Biden is not a righteous man. He's contrary to his own Roman Catholic faith. He takes issues that even the Roman Catholics can't agree with. And and he is regarded, even by religious people, as being an unrighteous man. Now, politically, he has lots of friends, and he's been elevated to the position of being the president of the United States. A man held in high esteem by, because of his offices in by this country and by other surrounding countries. But in the course of having achieved and become the president, we are witnessing, like Esau, coming down from a high place and literally taking a swan's die off the cliff and his tail is on fire and he's in an uncontrollable spin. And so it turns out that you are looking at what happens to an unrighteous man like Esau after he has been elevating himself. And this is the great story that goes on between Jacob and Esau. And this is what Obadiah... Now, Obadiah will shift gears here just a little bit. He's going to expand this argument. If you join with me in verse 15 of the same chapter, he says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, and as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Obadiah says this conflict that we saw between Jacob and Esau the end result of Jacob prevailing, Esau failing, we're going to see the same thing with the nations. We're going to see the descendants of Jacob, Israel, 
in this whole world conflict that has been going on. Israel is going to prevail. And all the other nations, they will be as though they never existed at the day of the Lord. Uh, it's a very powerful statement about God's judgment, about his sovereign will, and about how men don't get to dictate to the righteous how they must be or live. And this is an incredible lesson for us in, in the days that we live. I would encourage all of you, um, regardless of the circumstances that are in your life, the struggles that we as a community are going through, that you stand for righteousness. Be a righteous person as God defines that to you. And you will prevail in the end. There, mo there definitely will be struggles. But in the end, you will prevail. I think we are watching today, in the case of President Joe Biden and those associated with him, you're watching a catastrophic failure because they have lifted themselves up and they, are, they decided to follow a path of unrighteousness. And now we're seeing the consequences of that. All right, so that's our Torah portion, or half Torah portion that goes with the Torah portion for this week. Ephraim will be bringing your New Testament portion. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, to chapter 26. Hold your finger at verse 36, where we will begin there for our Brit Hadashah uh, teaching uh, for this week. And as you open the Scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, once again, for your teaching and your instruction as we study the living Word of God, Lord, as you minister to us through the Torah portions each and every week. Father, I pray that we would make those scriptures come alive and that it would speak to us in what we are dealing with in our current day-to-day -day lives, whatever we face each and every week. Father, I pray that you would just, uh, we turn this time over to you and pray that these words would be minister, would minister and be encouraging to all the brethren who might hear it. We thank you, Lord, for this time in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Vayishlach, which we have, uh, if we've done the reading and we've studied, that this is the story, of course, in which Jacob is coming back into the land and he sends messengers to his brother Esau to tell him that he is coming back. We, of course, know he spent the last bit of time with his uncle Laban. At the end of our portion last week, he made covenant with his uncle that he was not going to, that they weren't going to do any harm to each other and that he is getting ready to come back into the land some 20 years after uh, he had fled the land of Canaan, the land of his fathers. And of course, he did so a little bit under a cloud. He, uh, his brother Esau was seeking his life because he had taken the blessing. And so he sends these messengers to Esau and to see how uh, everything's going to go, how, how is this interaction going to happen? 
But we know that, of course, the messengers come back and they say, yes, see, Esau is on his way and coming to meet you with 400 men armed to the teeth, ready to go to war, ready, ready to kill you, your family, your whole, all, everything that belongs to you, and he's going to wipe you out. And so there was a great amount of distress that came upon Jacob. And we, of course, in our uh, Torah portion know the story of how he wrestled with the Lord and that when the interaction finally came, that he meet, met his brother, that ended up things went a little bit better than he thought they would. But that didn't stop the time of distress that he felt before preparing to meet his brother, before he came to face the one who sought to do him harm. All of the patriarchs, when we study the Torah, all have their own parallels to the Messiah himself. They're, they kind of all are this uh, Messiah-like figure themselves, That where we have Abraham, the father, and we have uh, Isaac, the promised son, and then we have Jacob, the, the Israel, and, and they all sort of represent God in a certain way, and that it makes, uh, it makes them like a Messiah. There's parallels to the, to the Messiah himself. So anytime that we're ever focusing on any one particular character, especially back in our Torah cycle, we, there's parallels that we can always make to Yeshua. In the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about Joseph, and we're going to be talking about all the parallels, and there is no end to the parallels between Joseph and the Messiah. But there's all these different comparisons. Now, I say all that to, to say this. There is a time in a reading in that the passage we're going to read for the um, Brit Hadashah teaching today is talking about a time in which the Messiah himself, that he was also sorrowful in distress. If we remember, Jacob, before when he wrestled with God, before he wrestled with God, and that he was preparing for this meeting with his brother, that he found himself alone. He found himself isolated, and then that's when he had this interaction with God, and he was going through this great amount of, of stress. Well, the Messiah, here at the very close, right before his crucifixion, this is after the Last Supper, this is when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he goes, and it was a watch night at the time when the Messiah came with his disciples and came into the garden, and he sat and he asked his disciples to sit and pray with him or watch with him and be with him for a little while. But they continued to fall asleep, and they continued to, and he found himself alone, in distress because the Messiah himself knew what was coming, that he was going to face his adversary. He was going to face his betrayer. Let me go and read the story here as we have in Matthew 26, the story of our Messiah Yeshua in the garden. And then as I start to read this, we, you will start to see some of the parallels of what happened to Jacob in our Torah portion for this week. Verse 36, Then Yeshua came with, uh, with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of uh, Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the time in which the, the Messiah, speaking to the disciples, and they, as the, the time started to pass, he knew the time was coming, that he was going to face his betrayer. With Jacob, in that night that he wrestled with the Lord, you know that it still was weighing on him that he was going to still go meet his brother. But it was that wrestling with the Lord that encouraged him, that strengthened him to know that it's like that he had striven with the Lord, so then he was able to strive with man. That was the encouragement to Jacob. What we see here is we see the weakness of the flesh of the disciples, that the Son of Man was the one who was now distressed, and that he himself is now facing that same distress, that same feeling that our patriarch Jacob also faced that night. This speaks to the parallel of everything the Messiah experienced, that he is always in the state of paying the price for our sins, our mistakes, and that he didn't have, the Messiah is left alone here. He's surrounded by disciples, weak of flesh. Jacob had the Lord on his side. Jacob had the Lord who who wrestled with them, who, who, who he knew that there was one greater than he that was going to be watching over him. But the Messiah himself is in this feeling that he had been left behind, that he had been abandoned. And he's praying to God the Father, praying to God, that he says, well, your, your will be done, but he's, but he's pleading that the cup would, he would be able to partake of the cup. Still, this is still going back to the Passover and the cup that he took and says, I will not drink of this until I see the kingdom. And this speaks to all the Messiah has done for us, that he felt forsaken on the cross. He felt the way that we feel when we feel abandoned, forsaken, and that he was overcame all of these things. It's, it's the story of the Messiah overcoming every issue that any of us have ever faced so that there is an example and a precedent for us to overcome any struggle or trial that we face ourselves. I guarantee you, Jacob, if he knew the story of the Messiah, and I believe we'll see him in the kingdom, and he will know, and and the Messiah can say that I felt what you felt that night before you were going to face your brother, what seemed to be certain death. Now, the story continues on in which then we have the interaction with Judas, with his betrayer. Then what he does is, is, is Judas is going to come and he's going to make himself known. And there's a very inter- interesting interaction that happens with Judas and the Messiah that if we've read the Torah portion, you will immediately see the parallel. Continuing on, verse 47 of chapter 26, Matthew. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Yeshua and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Yeshua said to him, Friend, why have you come? 
Then there came, then they came and laid hands on Yeshua and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Yeshua stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Yeshua said to him, Put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do not think that I can now pray to my Father that He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels. How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must happen thus. And in that hour Yeshua said to the multitudes, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat, I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and, did not, and you did not seize me. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples forsook him and fled. This is the, this interaction. This, this is the time in which this begins the crucifixion of the Messiah, when he is arrested, when he is taken. And that we have this very fascinating story of Judas, the one who was betrayed him, came to him and kissed him. Now, when you say that, you know, people know of this, and there's a, a phrase that you might have heard said that it's, that when somebody kisses somebody, it's the kiss of Judas, or it's the kiss of death. That it's like, that this is not a, this was not a greeting that was going to, uh, that, that had, you know, nothing but good intentions, and that Judas was happy to see his master and see his rabbi. No, this was a sign to the one that he was, uh, that he was working with, he was working with the people who meant harm, meant death to the Messiah, and that we know that there is the, that the spirit of the devil, of evil, was upon Judas in the whole process of him doing this. This kiss was not like a friendly kiss. This is one that tr truly showed and proved that he truly was intending to betray him. So now, of course, go back to our story with Jacob and Esau. What happened when they fell, when they, when they finally saw each other? When they finally saw each other, and, and Jacob, we'll, we'll get into the story, how he produced many gifts, and that he's trying to appease his brother, and he goes and he divides his company, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a, in a little bit, and that how when he finally did meet his brother, the one who was intending him harm. You know, everything sort of worked out the way, a lot better than we thought it was. He comes, they fall on each other, and Esau kisses his brother. And they weep together, and they reminisce. Now, was this interaction, was everything good between Jacob and Esau after this happened? No, of course not. There was still absolutely 100% animosity between Esau and Jacob. This was not them making up and suddenly everything was all better. In fact, it continues on in our Torah portion talking about the descendants of Esau becoming the Edomites, which it became a people that dwelt in the south of Canaan, and they were a heartache to the descendants of Jacob for many generations to come that they were the ones that then when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, coming into the land, they had to deal with the Edomites. And that they were the ones also that it's said and spoken of how they helped deliver his brother, the descendants of Jacob, Israel, into the hands of the Babylonians, that they stood by idly and did not come to support their brother. This is The Edomites and the descendants of Esau were never allies to Jacob and to his sons and to the kingdom of Israel. They never really were. They, they, they were neighbors. They cohabitated, cohabitated. They knew that they were related by blood, by brothers. But they absolutely never had the alliance that we would like to think that, a bro that brothers would have with each other. 
And that even though they had this interaction where they kissed each other, this was not a kiss of friendship. This was a kiss of bitter betrayal that would come later. The prophet Obadiah speaks solely of what happened to the Edomites. That judgment came upon them because of their pride, because of how they mistreated their brother. And you can look at that and the, ju- the judgment absolutely fell also upon Judas for what he did to the Messiah. This is this parallel and this interaction. And if you notice the Messiah taking the peaceful approach where he says, no, we're not going to go to war. We're not going to pull out swords and go to fight. This is going to be a losing battle. There's soldiers and multitudes coming against uh, what would be the Messiah and what would be his disciples. And this was going to be a slaughter. There's no way that these men could have uh, fought. They would have fought valiantly, but they would not have won in the course of this fight had it come to blows. Same was the case for Jacob and with Esau. Esau was coming with 400 men, armed to the teeth, ready to go to war. If Jacob decided to pull out his sword, to to, to prepare to fight, to prepare to battle, this was never going to end rightly and appropriately. And we know, of course, everything came out as it should. This is the same parallel to the Messiah when he said, look, the scripture must be fulfilled for me to be arrested, for this, that we're not, we're not going to fight. This is what, how things are meant to be. Because once again, the pattern always is the case. What happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And there is a complete parallel between the Messiah facing his betrayer, Judas. And when they came to meet and, and greet for, for the last time, they were, there was this interaction, but we know there was much more going on under the surface. Such is the case with the kiss of Esau, when Jacob came back into the land. So there's an amazing parallel here, of course, of, of, of the interaction between the Messiah and Judas and Jacob and Esau that, um, that, that teaches us that there's always more going on under the surface, that you can't just what meets the eye. You might see, oh, these people uh, loved each other. Well, no, of course not. The, the, the gospel sp- specifically says this was even the sign to the ones, the evil that Judas was working with, of who was going to war and or who was the enemy, so to speak. I might think, or there might be a teaching somewhere, that when Esau kissed his brother Jacob, that that very well could have been basically the, the spirit that was within Esau, that whatever, he, whatever evil that he associated with, that this could be the same thing in the spiritual world, that when Esau kissed his brother, it was basically the sign that it was Jacob that was going to forever be the enemy of Hasatan, the adversary of anything that is evil coming against, that this was the association, this was a sign to the rest of anyone, or the evil spirits that Esau uh, Uh, found himself in agreement with, that this was something that later on that continued to progress into more of the trials and tribulations that Jacob faced in his life. Now, back to our story. The the main thing I want to focus on, I want to take a look at, is one of the things that Jacob did before he met with Esau, his brother. He was trying to come up with every kind of thing that he could possibly do to defend against or, or to, to, to ward off his brother. 
came up with many ideas. We're going to give him a bunch of lavish gifts that we're going to give to him. In fact, he did end up giving all these gifts. He was going to try and appease him. And he then had his family walking with him when he came to meet him. And that maybe uh, Esau, though wanting to do harm to Jacob, would see the little ones or see the wives and, 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 and would take pity on him. I also believe that after he wrestled with the angel, he had an, an injury to his hip. He walked with a limp. And so Esau, always being a man after the hunt, after a, a, a man's man, he, didn't, he actually withheld his wrath toward his brother because he was already wounded or already appeared to be walking with a limp. Any number of things that, we, that might have gone into the fact that, that uh, the meeting between Jacob and Esau didn't come to blows. Well, one of the other ideas that Jacob did was, and this is the one that has amazing prophetic parallels into the future when he did this, was back in our story when he says when he was greatly distressed, he divided his family. It specifically says in verse 7 of Genesis 32, where it said, He divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds of the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, the other company which is left will escape. So this whole idea that he was able to, this is just a strategy here, one could say, that he's dividing in. So he's putting some of his family, his flocks, his, his, in one place, and then putting some of them in another. And so if attack truly comes to one, the other one will have a chance to escape. This is a pretty good strategy, honestly. If you don't want to be completely wiped out, it's obviously tragic. If you can't, uh, if you can't fight, but at least you will have part of your family that would still survive and would still live on. This is a this is an okay strategy. It's not the one you ever want to fall back on, but if you're trying to avoid completely being destroyed, it's an okay strategy. However, there is another amazing parallel, though, to all kinds of future things that will happen with Jacob and Israel, who his name will be changed to, in the whole idea that his entire family will be divided from this point on. There will be a division between his family, that there will be two houses of Israel. And then we saw this play out in going into the future when they went into the land of Israel and that there were two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom. There was a southern kingdom. There were two companies. And what they, unfortunately, what often happened is they warred with each other. They, 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 there was division within the family, not just a physical division, but a spiritual division as well. I'd like to take us to another New Testament passage where, there is, where the Messiah speaks something uh, that might uh, relate to this. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 12, where the, uh, and this is also quoted in Mark chapter 3, and this is the part in which God is talking about, and you may have heard it before, a house divided. So, if we turn to Matthew chapter 12 of verse 22, let us read here at about a time in which a man who was healed and who was demon-possessed, but the Messiah cast out the demon, and we can hear all of this instruction. Verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, and they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. 
But but Jesus, Yeshua, knew their thoughts, and He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, then how will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by, uh, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad." Very fascinating instruction here, and many people and teachers and scholars have wondered truly what all of this uh, that he's speaking and what this means. I believe there is a simple understanding that can come from this. I know there's more deeper spiritual things that the Messiah is speaking to, but there is one that is a little bit more simple but makes all the sense in the world and can actually help us to understand and how to relate and work with one another, even in our modern day, day day-to-day lives. The simple concept of a house divided against itself not standing. I always love the fact that 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 extra phrase is in there. It doesn't just say a house divided will not stand. Because if it just said that, well, then you might say, well, man, any time that there's any sort of physical uh, um, division between one people or another, that houses just crumble and fall and, and, and don't. And, and nothing can ever last, and no family can ever build itself up if every house divided falls. But no, it specifically says a house divided against itself. Okay, so then as we come to our modern day lives and within our families, we've all had issues within our families from time to time. We've had times in which some people are, there's a division, whether it's a physical division, a spiritual division, somebody believes something differently, or somebody said something to one person versus another, or whatever it might be. That we are divided, if we are divided, yeah, that's one thing. But if as we are divided, we then go to war with each other, that's when the house will fall. That's when destruction comes. So going back to uh, Jacob, dividing his household. It specifically says there in Genesis, he divided his people. Now, did he divide his people to war against each other? Did they always have this heart to uh, uh, be against one another, to, to, to have jealousy versus one versus the other? Now, that's not why he divided them. No, he divided them for their protection. He divided them so that, they, so, so that Israel might live on if anything were to happen to one versus the other. The problem comes is one if they war against themselves. Well, as our story continues on, and as we'll continue to study in, uh, in, into the future of what happened with the descendants of Jacob, we know there was division within the family. We'll start talking next week about how Joseph was, was um, uh, you know, his brothers were jealous of him, and that they sold him into slavery, and that, they, that, that there was all this division immediately within the family. None of that happened until the physical division happened in the family. 
And this will continue on constantly through them being divided as to, to, to who, uh, one doing one that the other one didn't like. Even in our Torah portion, after the interaction with Esau, there's going to be a whole time in which they come to the city of Shechem, and there'll be a whole incident in which their sister Dina will, will end up being raped by the, by the prince of that city, and two of the sons of Israel are going to go take vengeance on the city, and much to the chagrin of Jacob, because he was fearful of how all the uh, citizens of the land would look upon him as that his sons killed an entire city, and that there was immediately division upon coming back into the land within the family against one another. You can see these things, that the, all, all of these things all started to, to come and, and, and makes the house less strong, where they, where they fight against each other. All this goes all the way to when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel came in the times of the kings, and that there were civil wars between the peoples, civil wars and, and, and fights amongst them. And never was Israel ever whole once again until the divisions and the strife between them was removed. Now, we, we can, of course, see that God divided the kingdom of Israel for their safety and their protection. We have independent exiles that began for the northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity, the southern kingdom into Babylonian captivity, though they were freed and were able to come back, and that there has always been a remnant of Israel that perhaps if they were all one people, they might have gotten wiped out entirely a long time ago. But for their protection, Israel has been divided into two companies. But the whole goal of the future coming of the Messiah and when He wants to bring us all back is going to be when the house of Israel and the house of Judah become one once more. When they join back together. When it says in Isaiah that Israel will stop vexing Judah and Judah will stop vexing Israel, or Ephraim as it says, and that when, only when that happens will the house become one and whole again. The house is divided. 100% the house is divided. Nobody will argue the fact that we are divided. Even within our own uh, religions and our own denominations and anything that we follow, we're divided among one another on what we believe, what we follow. We sit here in the Messianic Hebrew Roots movement to sit in the bridge in the gap between Judaism and between Christianity and where we see and we're like, look, we are all believing in the same God. If we can just figure out how to stop hating one another, striving against one another, causing jealousy amongst one another, well, then we would be able to come back together and such has to happen before the return of the Messiah will come. But we have a lot of work to do because we continue to divide the house and continue to have strife between us. Because we are divided against ourselves. That's the nature of the, of the movement where we stand. This is why all the denominations of Christianity, all the different sects of Judaism that somehow that war with one another, and when we decide to go out and be different for the sake of being different, or try to build ourselves up by tearing down what, where we came from, all we do is continue the, the, the division, spiritual division between us, and that we're divided against ourselves. Look, we are divided, but we have to come to the point to where we are divided, but we are not against one another. Because a house divided will not stand. It does not stand on its own, is not whole, is not one. We are looking forward to the great restoration of the whole house of Jacob. It all began when he divided his company for the sake of protection. It is, of course, all God's plan, all of God's plan and purpose. However, 
God's plan and purpose doesn't end there. It ends with Him bringing back all of the scattered of Israel, bringing us all back so that we might be whole and might be one once again. That is the purpose of the Great Commission that the Messiah sent His disciples into the nations because there was a flock that was not there. There was the entire northern kingdom of Israel scattered into Assyrian captivity, scattered into the nations. No one, they didn't even know who they were. But the Messiah and His testimony would go into the nations and to bring them back, to draw them back. We believe that is being fulfilled, absolutely. We believe that it's, it, there's, uh, whether it's the majority of the modern mainstream Christian church that represents that northern kingdom of Israel. And there are people that are being led to the Messiah through that institution and are then being brought back to the Hebrew roots of their faith and coming in and joining together. We, are, we believe in this ministry and in this movement that we are seeing that restoration happen over time. Of course, we would love for the Messiah and the Lord to uh, snap His fingers and have it be this miraculous joining back together. But no, we all have to do our part in this great reunification. And it begins with us not being divided against ourselves. We shoot ourselves in, our foot, in the foot when we are all constantly in a state of fighting with one another. Well, you're wrong on this doctrine. You're, we, well, we do it this way, and we do it this way, and, and you shouldn't be following them because the, you know, they do it over the, where uh, they follow the wrong calendar. They say the name wrong. They do all of these things that divide us. And we sit there and we bicker about one another. Instead of working with one another, understanding that the Lord is doing great and mighty and marvelous things and that it is not our job to continue the division or pointing out the division against one another. We draw lines in the sand. We say, you're a Jew. We say, you're a Gentile. And that's always going to be the case. Unfortunately, Israel is a tree in which all are grafted into, regardless of what your heritage is or some title that we paint on one another, that no, we all are adopted in to become sons of the living God, that we get a title that is given by God, not defined by man. And that's where we need to get to. That's what we need to do. So how do we do that? How do we help to be the fulfillment of prophecy? Stop drawing lines of division against one another. It is that house that will not stand. We have been divided, yes. It has actually been for our sake, for our protection, that some of us we have divided. In fact, there's an entire other phrase where you ever heard the phrase divide and conquer. Sometimes when you divide things, you can actually fight two fronts at one time. Absolutely. I mean, where you, you can look at it, maybe this is a big broad brush stroke of, of idea or thought process where you have uh, Judaism that have been the ones who have maintained the culture, the custom, the traditions of how to follow the commandments and the word of the Lord. And they have had the Torah for a thousand, uh, for a thousand years, hundreds of years, and that you have the mainstream Christian church that has been leading people to the Lord for 2,000 years, and that they have divided and conquered two major things that have to be done. One, following and obeying the Lord and keeping the commandments, the Torah, the, the, the traditions and the words of Moses and the customs of Moses, keeping those things safe, while at the same time there is a whole lot of people in the world who are in need of saving that the Christian church has done their job to lead people to the Lord and to the Messiah. If those two things have been divided in all the ideas of Judeo-Christian values that we have in our life, they've been divided and they've been conquering things and issues and things that have needed to be done in the course of history. 
They have divided and conquered. Now, problem is, is they've also divided and then been divisive against one another and causing strife and saying one is wrong and one had killed the Messiah and one killed all the prophets and the other one is that, that you can't be one or the other. And it's like, no, God has a plan for all of it. And it all has to do with the reunification of the whole house of Israel. This is what the Messiah was doing. This was the purpose of the Great Commission. And it was all about a great regathering of all the household of Israel. One more last parallel I want to draw to our Torah portion for this week of Vayishlach. Something fascinating. It might be a little uh, circumstantial. It might be, some people might say, well, that's, that's just coincidence that that's the case. Well, in our Torah portion, it's actually a pretty long Torah portion um, back there in Genesis, there is exactly 153 verses in that Torah portion. 153. Now, we might say, oh, well, the numbering of the, of the verses all happened later after when they, when they canonized the Bible and, and lined out what was a verse and what wasn't a verse, and it stops at this sentence here and not that one there, whatever it was. There's still a coincidence, fascinating, when it, you see the number 153, because this, of course, dies directly to, at the end of the Gospel of John, when the disciples were fishing after the Messiah had... Um, after the, after the Messiah had been crucified, but then that he then goes and they go fishing. They don't know what to do, so they go fishing, and then he calls to them, and he shows back up to them, and he says, throw your net in on the right side, and they didn't know who he was on the side of the shore. And suddenly they pull in the fish, and it's 153 fish, and they, we, they know the Messiah has come back to life, that he has risen. And that's number 153. Why? Why is number 153 significant? Well, there's fascinating parallels in the gematria that that number represents the, the, um, uh, the phrase, sons of the living God, and it was immediately following this that he was going to say, and sends them on the Great Commission, sends them, go feed my sheep, I will make you fishers of men. And that, again, it's a, it's a callback to the regathering of the whole house of Israel. So we can go all the way back to our Torah portion with 153 verses in it, in the Torah portion where it begins the division of the house of Israel into two companies, knowing that it is the Great Commission and the work of the Messiah that will regather the whole house of Israel. Beautiful little parallel that encourages us in our modern day walk as we are going about doing our best to study the Word, follow the commandments of God, that we know we are a part of a greater picture and a greater company. We might think that we have our own isolated place in the world, that we are this particular religion or this particular faith, and that we're never going to ever interface with this one or that one. No, God has a greater plan for the entire world, I guarantee you, and that we are looking forward to that greater plan, to the reunification, to find out that we have way more family and way more in common with another group of people than we ever thought or imagined that we would. And we will all be caught up in the great will and the plan of God to restore His house and His family. We're looking forward to the kingdom when we will all dwell with Him in the land of Israel where the Messiah will be our King and He will be the great Torah teacher and we will be learning all of these things and all of these instructions and as we retell the stories of old and you'll be hearing it from the Messiah Himself and not from flawed men who do our best to share and encourage the people with the Word of the Lord. What a great day that will be. And may we continue to stay focused on that that's the goal that we will all be one with the Messiah at some future day. But we have to do our part to not continue to, dry, to draw the lines of division between us, knowing 
that we are all a part of Israel and we are all sons of the living God. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction, Father. Father, I thank you for um, choosing us from among all peoples, Lord, Father, and I pray for, and I thank you for Israel, Lord, for Jacob, for his family, Lord, that it was through this family, through this seed, that all the nations might be saved and all the nations might be blessed. Father, I pray that you would uh, allow us to be to, to, to take this adoption into your family, knowing that we are a part of your family, Lord, that we are heirs to the kingdom, to the inheritance, Lord. And Father, as you have not yet returned, Lord, to this earth, Father, I pray that we remain steadfast to be a part of your kingdom, to be the fulfillment of prophecy to love one another, to teach words and instructions, Father, how to follow you better with our hearts and with our lives, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would stop causing jealousy among one another, Father, that we would stop vexing one another, and that we would learn to become whole and one, and that we will not be divided against each other any longer. Father, we have been separated from our brethren, but Father, I pray for a great restoration, a great reunification of the whole house of Israel. And Father, may we all be caught up in that and surrounded in your perfect will in what you are doing in our lives as we prepare for your soon return, Lord. We love you. We bless you and thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for all of these things. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.